Well, for the last couple of nights, we've explored selfing, the nature of the self, and the blockages that that self brings to our experience in obfuscating our vision, obfuscating, obfuscating our ability, for example, to bring metta, compassion, joy into the world. This is where we've been. This is the terrain we've been journeying around for the last couple of nights. And I want to take you a little further into the depths of our experience this evening and start looking at the world of our experiencing of our experience and the patterning of our experience. However, before I just do so, I want to read you a short quote which I think makes it all too plain what the Buddha is saying about the nature of the self and the problem that it causes. And this is a quotation from the Connected Discourses, which is the Sangyutta Nikaya. And this, the Buddha says, he who imagines is bound by Mara. Mara is literally the word Mara means death. Um, it's a kind of demonic figure, but not in the same way as the Christian you know, demon is. It's something that resides in our own head. So he, he, who is, he who imagines is bound by Mara. He who does not imagine is freed from that one. I am. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. That is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Embodied shall I be. Formless shall I be. I shall be conscious. I shall be unconscious. Neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This imagining is an absolute disease. Imagining is an abscess. It's a barb, a hook. I am is, after all, an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is simply a delirium. I am is finally a conceit. So I think it makes it fairly plain. <laughs> Sometimes the Buddha doesn't pull his punches about what he wants to say about things. So this I am, that is at the heart of our ordinary experience. Well, how does this come to be? How does this imagining come to be? How is our experience patterned? How do we find ourselves in various states? That really is going to be the topic I want to speak about this evening. Now many of you will have probably seen at some point in your vague travels through Buddhism and connections with Buddhist thought and practice a piece of iconography which is usually used in a Tibetan tradition which is called the Wheel of Life. Most people seen this? The Wheel of Life, well, it's something which was probably there in all traditions, but the Tibetans have actually preserved it as a teaching aid. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about this, because the area where I want to go is actually iconographically represented in the outer rim of this Wheel of Life. In the centre of the Wheel of Life, where we meet our old familiar favourites, Loba, Dosa and Moha. greed, aversion and delusion. And in the iconography, um, 
delusion is represented by the pig, out of the mouth of which comes a snake and a cock, which actually represent the other two. They represent, obviously, the snake, hatred or aversion, and the cock, greed or desire. So that's right at the very centre. And a few nights ago I was talking about these. These, of course, are, again, the obstacles, the impediments to our developing any real awakened state, to waking up, not waking up to this or that, but waking up to the way things really are, because this is the Buddha's message. It's about waking up. It's not about anything else. It's not about trotting off to some metaphysical heaven uh, and enjoying ourselves. It's about waking up to the here and the now. This is the very nub of what the Buddha is speaking about. He's not holding out promissory notes for some heavenly afterbirth state, after-death state. He's actually speaking about being fully present in this moment, fully alive. However, most of you will know that the traditions speak about rebirth. And I just want to take a little excursus into into talking about the six possible destinations that you could end up in, according to this. And I'm going to give you the kind of classic way of putting this, and I'm going to hopefully twist it around a little bit. Well, we have six realms of existence, according to this. And these are all segmented. You'll find this in the Wheel of Life. If you ever actually have a look at it, it's great fun, the way they're depicted usually. At the very top of the sangsaric world is the state called the Deva state, which is the Devas are the gods, for want of a better word, the deities. They reach, they've reached the pinnacle of the samsaric world. Um, the Buddha, again, by crafty sleight of hand, didn't dis- just dismiss gods, because gods were a big part of the Indian scene. What he did was he demoted them. <laughs> he actually put them in the samsaric world and not outside of it. So they're actually there by virtue, actually, of nice little merit bank balances that they've built up, supposedly, over the courses of their lifetimes. They lead these enormously long lives, according to this, in comparison with the human lifespan. As such, in leading these enormously long lives, they have very little impetus to do anything. Um, they don't particularly do good action, but they don't do particularly bad action. And, of course, and of course being at the very pinnacle... You know, it's like reaching the top of your profession. Where is the, where is the only way you can go? Down. <laughs> so when their little merit bank balance runs out, it says they die and they are reborn again. They are reborn in one of the lower realms because they haven't created either particularly good deeds and actions and they haven't particularly created any bad actions. But their merit has run out and so there they go, downward into the... Um, lower realms of existence. Now, <laughs> I was reading one of the texts once and I came across this lovely little detail about the, the devas and I think it's really almost very appropriate to the so-called human realm as well. Because it says when these devas are about to die and be reborn, they start to smell and nobody wants to speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a lovely little bit of detail. <laughs> So that's the very pinnacle. Um, and then usually, sometimes to the right or left, there's a little bit of you know, there's a little bit of artistic license in this, unlike most um, Tibetan painting, 
which is pretty rigidly um, tied to structure. In the, the right or the left-hand side of the devas, which is right in the centre at the top, there is a realm which is known as the Asura realm. There's not really an adequate translation. Titans is probably, if you know your Greek mythology, is the one that comes the closest to it. But they are the jealous gods. They actually really want what the gods have got. Yeah. And a nice, again, little touch in the um, representation, in the pictorial representation, is that the, there's a wish-fulfilling tree. In other words, it grants whatever you want. Um, and its roots are in the realm of the Asuras, but all of its fruits are in the realms of the gods. Yeah. And um, I actually like to think of the Asuras as trying to be upwardly mobile, as that phrase used to be used. They're trying to get to what the gods have got, and consequently they're always fighting. Um, the word Asura is a contraction of a Sanskrit word, which is Asurya, which some of you might know the word Surya means sun. It means the sun literally doesn't shine on them anymore. Uh, this battle between the gods, by the way, and uh, the kind of demigods, the jealous gods, is that, if you know anything to do with opera, Wagner, it's the, the, the ring cycle. It's the same legend that's there in, our, in, in sort of Indo-Aryan mythology. So they're trying to get to what the gods have got, so they're constantly squabbling and warring and fighting and everything else to try and get to the top. And to the other side, either, again, either right or left, because it depends on the depiction, you'll find a human realm, which, um, which really is represented here. It's not the highest realm, because the Deva realm is the highest realm. Um, the human realm represents the possibility... Not the actuality, but the possibility of the development of compassion and the development of understanding, insight or wisdom. You choose your word, they all pretty well mean the same thing. So it's not the actuality, but the possibility of that. Those are considered to be what's called the three happy destinations. <laughs> you could go to one of those three and they're kind of a lot better than the bottom three. Because the bottom three includes the realm of the jealous of the hungry ghosts, which are called Peta or Pretas. Um, and these are depicted in the iconography, again, great fun they have in depicting these, with little tiny skinny necks, tiny pinhole mouths, and enormous stomachs and an insatiable thirst. Um, so it represents really, in many senses, kind of the desire that can never be fulfilled. Because it says, each bit of food and drink they put in their mouth causes them immense pain because they can never satiate this endless desire because they can never get enough in uh, to satiate their desire. Then there's the, probably the only other realm we actually physically recognize other than the human realm, which is the animal realm. Now, in ancient India, um, the animal realm was considered by early Buddhists to be a realm of blind desire, um, abandonment to instinct, if nothing else, and a realm of great persecution. I don't think things have changed much in terms of the latter part. You know, when you think of the millions and millions of animals that die each day, you know, either being killed by other animals or killed by humans for eating purposes. So that really, really hasn't changed that much. Um, as Schopenhauer once said, the German philosopher, I look around the world and I see everything eating everything else. You know, that's the situation, and particularly with regard to animals. So animals, blind instinct, realm of great suffering and persecution. 
particularly the blind instinct, the dominance of you know basically procreation and feeding and defecating and it, you know and all the rest of it. It's all that abandonment there, so it's nothing other than the very basic elements that, that are present. And then finally, almost you know, directly in the centre, opposite to the Deva realm at the very bottom, is the hell realm. Here, in the hell realm, uh, beings are punished by their own deeds. And they have, actually, the Tibetans have great fun depicting this. I always remember one person on one depiction I saw, supposedly for the, um, for the karma of having lied, is having his tongue stretched out, and they're going over it with a plough. <laughs> so they get into these great sort of, um, really, uh, I don't know, very great artistic license in doing this. But, more serious point about it, the hell realm. What happens in the hell realm? Who judges? Well, as you probably know, Buddhism is atheistic. It really doesn't have, has lots of gods, um, demoted, as I say, but it doesn't have a god. So there's nobody judging in the hell realm. What happens is Yama, who's the god of death, holds up a mirror. And you judge yourself according to what you see in the mirror. So in other words, your own deeds are judged by you and the punishment meted out is meted out by you. So it's nobody else judging. Now, I hope that's a, much more, that's a much more traditional way of going through this, a much more traditional way of actually explaining this. And within Tibetan culture and within a lot of Buddhist cultures, people will literally say, you know, if you do this, you will be reborn in these areas. But having said that, it's a profound psychology. There are you know, versions of this that you'll find in the early canon where they discuss this, where they talk about it in psychological terms. And I hope you were there with me, even if I didn't lay it out, because explicitly what it means is, of course, the arrogance and the pride of the gods. This is what it is. Those who feel they have everything and don't have to do anything. We can see those perhaps within society. People who have that kind of overwhelming conceit and arrogance um, that they don't have to do anything at all, either good or bad, for anybody other than themselves. So that's represented by the godlike realm, so it represents this state of arrogance. Then, as I say, there are those who are striving, really fighting and striving and kicking to get to the top, to get all of that material stuff, perhaps, which is represented by what the gods have got. So psychologically, there are those who are just striving in this way and desiring to get to this kind of pinnacle of the sangsaric world. (coughs) Human realm, I'll bracket out for a second. Let's go, down to the, let's go down to the lower realms again. Well, I almost told you immediately, of course, about the Praetor realm. What is the Praetor realm? It's desire that can never be satisfied. It can never be quenched. So this hunger and thirst which is represented by the Praetors is actually a desire which by its very nature is incapable of any satisfaction whatsoever. Then we have the animal realm. Well, that's, you know... The psychology of just abandonment to blind instinct. That is all it is. You know, um, very animalistic behavior, if you want to put it in those terms. I think it's sometimes slightly insulting to animals, but never mind. <laughs> you know, that we are compelled just to do certain things. Primary drives, I think Freud would probably talk about them as here. And then at the bottom, of course, is the realm of immense suffering the kind of punishments that we mete out to ourselves, the self-laceration, the very opposite of the kind of things that we've been trying to develop over this week so far, 
uh, it's not meta that goes on in the hell realm at all. In the hell realms, what goes on is this laceration of oneself, um, the, dis- the despair, the depressions, the blackness of feeling in a hell-like realm. And so what you've got represented is six psychological forms. And when I first learned this way, way, way back in the 1970s, the teacher I was studying with at the time, I said to him, I know these types of people. <laughs> I got sort of into pigeonholing them. You know, I know somebody who's like that, and I know somebody who's like that, and I know somebody who's like that. You know, somebody who's after you know, just basically being driven by, I don't know, their sexuality or something. People who are being driven by this endless desire for material things and you know, can't get enough of it, just keep buying and buying and buying and accumulating and accumulating. I know people who are despairing and depressed and people who are godlike in their arrogance. Um, and I haven't mentioned as yet, of course, the human realm, which is, you know, I did actually just give you a full delineation, even in the brief, more traditional way of putting it. It's the realm of possibility, the possibility of wisdom, compassion, and the development of those things in life. And I went through this with this particular teacher and said, is it like that then? Is it, you know, the kind of, does the, do these represent six psychological types? Um, because there is actually a teaching in Buddhism which has a number of psychological types. And this particular teacher looked at me rather disgusted and he goes, no, that's a picture of you on one day. (laughs) (laughs) And then, actually, humour aside, he actually turned it into a very profound question. He said, how often are you human in a day? How often are you fulfilling fulfilling that potentiality? Question I think we all have to ask ourselves because... I think we can all see that, without too great a leap, that we are vacillating between these states. We're moving around between them. I think even, you know, that's a picture of you in one day is being rather generous, actually. It's probably a picture of you in, you know, ten minutes. (laughs) I think this is the way that we're moving between these states and how often, in other words, in this question about how often are we human, how often are we displaying, how often are we really embodying wisdom and compassion in our lives? That's the quest, that's the goal. These are the destinations and these are psychological destinations. And so the majority of our experience is patterned in terms of these very crude psychological states. And this is to give you a kind of broad brushstroke, really, I think, this particular teaching, to give you a broad brushstroke of where you can be and the way that we oscillate and move and you know, between these various states continuously, spinning round and round and round. Remember, one of the things about the nature of samsara is it's circular. It's the ultimate vicious circle uh, of entrapment that you're trapped within. So much so, again, in the iconography, and it's always good if you haven't seen one of these, go away and have a look at one. There's plenty in the books, I'm sure, that you'll find in the bookshops. You'll find that the Buddha is represented outside of the wheel. In other words, indicating that the only freedom that really exists exists outside of this wheel of endless becoming. Uh, that we're trapped within. So, if that is the way that experience is patterned, in a broad and crude sense, how is it patterned in a much more subtle sense? And how do we experience that? 
Well, the Buddha starts to take us through our experience in terms of what he calls 12 links. Sometimes, even in something which is known as the Mahanidana, these links are called Nidanas, in something called the Mahanidana Sutta, he actually only gives nine, but the most extensive description is meant to be 12. And some of you might know this teaching under the name of dependent origination. Really, it's how every moment is patterned psychologically for us and showing, in a sense, both our entrapment and our possible escape route out of this entrapment. Now, the important thing to understand about this is that all of our experience is conditioned. There is nothing which arises without a cause. There is nothing, in other words, to use a more philosophical way of putting it, there's nothing which arises ex nihilo. Nothing arises out of nothing. There is always a cause. Some of you who might know the Four Ennobling Truths, and hopefully most of you will know that, um, will know that the second of the Ennobling Truths is there is a cause to dukkha. This is you know, what's, it, what's called you know, the, the causation behind dukkha. And there's approximate cause which is given for this. And the approximate cause, the most immediately identifiable cause for the production of dukkha in our lives, for the production of everything that this is, this vast spectrum word, and which includes all of these things such as despair and depression and unsatisfactoriness and suffering under its umbrella, is caused by desire, by craving. This is the most immediately identifiable source of it. So we see dukkha arising when we start to crave. And you can see that. You know, if you want something, particularly if you can't fulfill it, then you're going to get a rather unpleasant psychological state arising if you can't immediately satisfy a desire. Now, often that's what happens on retreats. Yeah? The desires that you normally have that you can satiate at home are no longer easily able to be satiated. So you're just left with the unpleasant sensation of being there with a desire that you can't actually quench. But actually you don't quench desire because the moment you get the thing that you wanted, you want something else. And then something else and something else. And I'll speak about this a little bit more as we move into this terrain. So that's the most immediate cause. It's also the idea, of course, that if the causes themselves which sustain this particular condition, this particular illness, actually, and this is often the way that it's represented as an illness or a disease, um, one particular scholar refers it to it as the human problem situation that we have. This is what the Buddha is really speaking about and attempting as a, if you like, a spiritual physician um, to diagnose and help us to overcome by setting us on a regimen to health, on a way back to normal, healthy functioning again. But this idea, this identification that there there is a cause to our problems in a sense, is good news. Because if there is a cause and we eradicate the cause upon which the malaise is based, then the malaise, the illness, the sickness, will disappear. And in fact, this much misunderstood word 
which most of you will know because it's entered into the... Well, actually, Sangsara's entered into the English language, hasn't it? It's become a perfume. <laughs> and, well, well um, this really speaks a lot about the Western world because Sangsara became a perfume and Nirvana became a rock band. <laughs> Yeah, so nirvana definitely has entered into it. And so you'll find, particularly nirvana, in the Oxford English Dictionary and various other dictionaries. Um, and the word nirvana was often, particularly in the early ways of understanding, it was understood as extinction. Um, so actually, a lot of you know, people in the 19th century, particularly Christians, went around scratching their heads wondering why Buddhists wanted to kill themselves. Yeah. <laughs> basically, because they thought it was total extinction that was actually acquired, without actually ever beginning to really look at the scope that, um, and the range of what the word nirvana meant. It meant extinguishment. The word literally is um, a verb in Pali and Sanskrit, which means to go out. And it was actually referring to something you've heard me talk about the other night. Remember? Three fires that I spoke about? Greed? Aversion and illusion. Well, nirvana represents the going out of the three fires. It's not about the extinguishment of the individual. It's about the eradication, the going out, literally the burning out of the fires which sustain sangsaric existence. In other words, sustain our problem situation, to use that phrase again, that we exist in. So, the Buddha is trying to get us to identify how we get ourselves in the tangle that we do. And the first of the links that he begins to talk about, the one which is really the deepest, the most problematic for us when we begin to examine it, is really a synonym for the word delusion. It's avidya, which is the Pali word which means ignorance or can be translated as ignorance. However, much of the time people get this wrong because they associate ignorance with being simply something like the deprivation of knowledge. You know, if only I knew this X, Y, Z, whatever it is, I would overcome the problem. Well, um, I guess probably a lot of us have heard a lot of teaching over the years, perhaps some less than others, but, you know, have we attained nirvana yet? No. Yet most of us probably have the requisite knowledge that we need in terms of intellectual knowledge. So it's not simply want of intellectual knowledge that's the problem. There is something else which is implied in the term avidya, or avidya as it is in its Pali form, which isn't simply about deprivation. In other words, this ignorance takes on a much more positive cast, if you like, than the way that we normally see it in terms of negativity and deprivation of something. A vidya actually represents not knowing, but it also represents not wanting to know, ultimately, for all sorts of other psychological conditions. So in other words, not only do I not know and not see, and these are two words that are used by the Buddha very much during in the course of the canon, and the sutta material, one who really is awakened both knows and sees. So seeing is not enough and knowing is not enough. It's the coming together of these two dimensions which become so fundamentally important, both knowing and seeing. 
Let me take a, a kind of analogy here. This is, if you sense, this is like the addict. The addict is probably the best expert on their addiction. But they still are addicted. You know, they know all the information as to why it's bad for them. You know, and what it's doing to them, health-wise. You know, take smoking or drinking or whatever it might be. Most of them know, you know, the, you know the information regarding and surrounding their addiction. And we are in a similar position. We hear the teachings. We hear the teachings. I joked about something the other night. You know, it's like everybody sits here, and I've done this a lot in this hall, talking about impermanence over the years I've been teaching here. And people sit there and almost, you know, you can see them inwardly, sagely nodding their heads. You know. Yet, it's kind of everything is impermanent. Not me. Because there's the, in a sense, the blockage, the not really wanting to take that on board. Because, actually, fear, as a psychological condition, can be involved with this, that you know, I don't really, really want to take on board that, that it actually is my impermanence, which is an issue. Not just the impermanence of everything, the change that's written into if you like our contract in the world, if there is a contract, you know, everything around us is changing, we are changing, our loved ones are changing, death is there. You know, so there is, there's an awful lot of transitoriness, there's an awful lot of evanescence actually that we observe around us, but the one thing we find it radically difficult to take on board, of course, is our own finitude, our own possibility of non-being. Yeah, that's something that find, we find, I think, very, very difficult. Hence, you know, the prohibitions that used to be around so much about, you know, death is not a polite after-dinner conversation. You know, it's not something people talk about. There's a lot of evasion. So, just using that as an example, there is a not wanting to know, a positive not wanting, really, to go into the depths. Because the Buddha is giving us a very, very radical message of radical contingency. Everything is contingent. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will remain the same. Yeah? There is change. This does not make life meaningless, by the way. And perhaps that, you might like to ask me some questions about that at some point. But it's not making life meaningless. Radical contingency, in a sense, is what makes life meaningful yeah, for us. That we are finite, unlike well, the gods are finite, but they just don't perceive it because they have supposedly these enormously long lives. You know, our finitude makes us make choices in our lives. Okay, we make good ones and we make bad ones, but we make choices. Out of the choices arise meaning that we have to make. However, coming back to the Savidya, the Savidya also has other contents um, to it, really, in a sense, buried at the heart of the Avidya. Well, these are called asavas in the technical term. It's a virtually untranslatable word, um, actually. Um, really, it means something like an outflow, something which is pouring out. Um, it has, actually, the very connotation of effluent, incontinence, um, within it as well. Something is pouring out of us. What is pouring out of us? Ignorance is one. This is called a vijasava. You know, this is pouring out of us into the world. What else is pouring out of us? Kamasava, the desire for sensual things. That's 
you know, something we constantly, in a sense, are throwing out onto the world, expecting our desires to be satisfied. Yeah. Then there is finally the desire for continued existence, you know, in any possible form, it doesn't matter. You know, any possible form, the desire for continued existence, that we are thrusting out onto the world as well. So this is flowing out of us. In the sutta material, these three are considered to be the primary sources of our you know, constriction, of our boundedness to samsaric experience, that we have these three. So much so that one who has overcome the asavas is referred to as kinasava, and this is a synonym for being awake, for waking up. One who has brought a cessation to the asavas. And then just for good measure, in some of the slightly later material, not much later, probably growing up in the Buddha's own lifetime, they add a fourth to it, and it's called dittasava. Um, dittasava is actually opinions. Yeah. So we, it's not a very promising start, is it, if you think about it? You know. There we are at the start. What keeps us bound? Well, what keeps us bound is ignorance, sensual desire, desire for continued existence, and being full of a whole bunch of opinions. Not knowledge, but opinions. And we keep gushing them out onto the world. (laughs) Hence the reason why I call it incontinence. Um, That these are flowing out of us. So that is the content of our entrapment. This is what keeps us so bound. In a way, that's the deepest level and the most difficult level to get at, to eradicate, to cease in these ways that are often spoken about in the text. How they manifest, how these things manifest, is in activity, of course. And the second of the linkages is something which is construction, formation. We've had it in when I was talking about the self, how the self is constructed. There's something called sankharas here. Um, on the Tibetan depiction that shows somebody modelling, or moulding, I should say, moulding a pot. They're constructing it out of their very own hands. They're getting a piece of clay and they're moulding it up into a form. This is a representative of sankharas. In other words, we create, in a sense, our own destiny by our own moulding of this, of our lives, the shape and the form in which we give it, the formations, the habits that we construct, you know, both bodily habits, habits of speech, habits of mind. We are very habitual. I don't know if you noticed that. We are creatures of immense, deeply ingrained habits. um, I often joke about this and say, actually, from the Buddhist perspective, all of humanity has obsessive-compulsive disorder. (laughs) This is what we do again and again and again and again and again. And it causes us pain when we can't do these things, when we can't automatically fall into our normal habit patterns. More technically, these are in the senses, it's not that technical, because the word karma only means actions. These are activities which are formed and are forming. So they're not at an end, they're not an end story, because karma itself is never at an end. This kind of ridiculous stuff I often hear when people say, well, it must be their karma. A, that's arrogance for a start, to know what anybody's karma is. You can't know your own, let alone others. Um, 
But karma is never at an end because, you know, in response to an effect, you create more karma. That's what you're doing. So it's never at an end. So even if it was, in scare quotes, bad karma, something very positive could be made out of it and the way that you respond to it. So it's not a fatalism that says, okay, and this is actually the way this is often interpreted in Hinduism, that this is kind of the hand that you're being dealt with and the only way to overcome it is to get a better rebirth. That is not the Buddhist attitude. The only way to overcome it is by responding to it, dealing with it, trying to create something much more wholesome and positive out of the karma in the sense which might have accrued to you. So the karmic formations here, these formations are the habits, these deeply, deeply ingrained habits which are being formed, of course, out of, so in other words, they are dependent on the ignorance and the asavas which underlie them. Now, in a sense, that is what we're bringing with us into every moment. That comes in every moment, unless you deal with it. So in every moment... Our situation as we sit here at this moment, even responding perhaps to what you're listening to, is being conditioned by past stuff. Not a million miles away from psychoanalytic understandings. The past is not past. It's here present with us at this moment. How we deal with it is then up to us. It becomes fatalistic, of course, when we don't deal with it. So it comes into the moment, it's there in the moment with us. And the first thing, of course, that is then arising in dependence on this stuff is consciousness. In other words, we're conscious of it. That's what's arising. That's immediately we're finding, you know, we're in a way taking a relationship to that past stuff. Often, for example, we're filtering it through. Whatever we, you know, even hearing now, we're filtering it through that past stuff, through our proclivities, through our habit patterns, through the ignorance which underlies it as well. Don't look so depressed. (laughs) It really isn't that bad. (laughs) Then you get the arising of what's called Nama Rupa here. And it's being the next link in the chain. Now often this is interpreted as simply being mind and body. Nama being mind, which literally means name. You know, it's the closest in these languages you'll get to English. Nama. And then rupa, which is form. So it's often thought and interpreted as being both the mind and the body. You know, consciousness obviously is in a relationship to mind and body. It's part of the mind-body relationship. However, it really doesn't just mean mind and body. It means the blueprinting of the mind and body, if you can understand that. It means what is, in a sense, set, settled, set down, that's going to mature much later. So, in other words, out of the conditioned patterns, which consciousness takes a view on, our body and our mind is patterned in certain ways. So let's take a very simple example, just to... If we have habit patterns in, say, relationship to diet, obviously they're going to have an effect at some later point 
in our physical health. If I have habit patterns in relationship to the way I think and the way that I do things, they are going to have an effect much, much later. So we are laying down each moment, in a sense, the future of our minds and our bodies. For good and for bad, in each case. We can move it, nudge it either way. It doesn't have to be all bad. But we are laying down because of these habitual tendencies that we we have got which are based on the ignorance. So let's just take a quick snapshot backwards again. I'm not going to do the whole 12 links tonight. We'll have part two and you'll find out who did it. <laughs> so what we have at the moment is a vidya upon which the formations are dependent. And on the formations, these habitual tendencies, consciousness is, is dependent. Consciousness has independence on it it has this mind and body. So consciousness is taking, in a sense, a consciousness of all of those habit patterns which are both of body, speech, and mind. And they are being laid down as a blueprint for your future. Yeah. Hence the reason, I think I might slip in at this point, why mindfulness is useful. Yeah. Because if that is the case, yeah, what are you doing at this moment is going to have a future effect. That is why, because each moment, in some senses, is a karmic moment. It's an activity, which is going to lead to what's called a result, a fruit, at some point. So I'm doing that now, I'm laying that down now, each moment in time. Now, unless, of course, we get into our habit patterns and see them and sometimes break them, then we're creating a self-fulfilling destiny down the line, unawares, unaware that we're doing so. Out of this complex of things, we get, of course, the mind and body per se, actually the senses, the six senses. Now, in Buddhism, we speak about six senses, not five because there is the mental sense. And what does it sense? It senses mental objects. So even in, I don't know, I don't know sensory deprivation chamber, you would still be sensing. You would be still be sensing mental stuff. You know, even if all our physical senses were blocked off in some way or another. Because we have mind and body, senses, then, of course, we're going to just as I am at this very moment, contact things. Pasa or sparsha. There's an intimate contacting of things. So I contact both mental and physical stuff continuously. I can't really be in this world without contacting things. Out of that contact arises then something else we've encountered a couple of nights ago. Out of that arises Vedana. Out of it arises feeling. Yeah. So whenever I contact something, and this is, you can see this in meditation. This is what you're doing. You'll see, for example, that everything that you contact, be it something, a sensation in the body that you might observe, or it might be something in the mind, a thought, will have, for example, it will be pleasant, 
It will be unpleasant and it will be neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Really that covers a whole range of our experiences both mentally and physically. And they change, don't they? Have you ever watched a sensation in the body? I'm not talking about an excruciating pain when you're doing yourself damage, but when you watch a sensation in the body, particularly in meditation, when you sit there and you have this sensation that's perhaps in the leg or something like that, and it's unpleasant. You sit with it a bit longer, it becomes pleasant. Then it becomes neither. Then it comes back as being unpleasant again. And it oscillates between these three things. And the same often with thought processes, with what we're contacting in the mind. They will have these feeling tones. So everything that comes to us, in a sense, is toned when we contact it in these forms. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And in some of the Parsana schools, that's exactly the first place you start off, looking at what's arising in terms of its, in terms of its feeling tone. Looking at the body in terms of what's going on. Scanning the body and seeing whether the sensations which are there are pleasant, unpleasant or neither. However, now the story becomes interesting. (laughs) Because what arises out of pleasant, unpleasant and neither? Well, the word that's used, and I will give you the Pali term, it's tanha. It's this particular word and it means an unquenchable thirst. Translated as craving. Can be translated as desire. Interestingly, of course, this form of craving is not just a craving for, which would seem the most obvious. You know, I desire this or I crave this. That would seem the most obvious way of thinking about our desires. But it's not, actually. If you examine your experience, what's your experience? Your experience is Probably, if you look at it, craving to avoid as much as craving to have. You crave or you desire to avoid certain experiences as much as you desire to have certain other experiences. So, here we have again, attraction or desire and aversion arising in relationship to everything that's coming to us moment by moment. And then we have a great grey area in the middle, which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which in a sense represents delusion. We just don't know. It doesn't come. It might slip into pleasant or unpleasant, and then I get the automatic feeling of the craving which wants or the craving that wishes to avoid. And because, and I'll just finish off on this, and I'll pick this up again tomorrow night, because Buddhists, as you probably gathered, are list fetishists. (laughs) I love lists. There are three forms of craving. (laughs) Doesn't come simple. (laughs) There is the craving for sensual things, which is called kamatanha, craving for all that sensual stuff. Western world's really good at it. We have lots of sensual stuff, don't we? There's lots of goodies out there to desire. So really, in fact, you can think that the modern capitalist societies actually function on the circulation of desire. 
you know, circulating it and distributing it in certain ways to you know, to do this. I mean, to actually you know, encourage us to keep on buying, and this is what it's all about. And you look at the adverts from a Buddhist perspective, you'll see things like, you know, if you have this, you will be this type of person. You'll be satisfied and fulfilled, well, at least until the new model comes out. (laughs) You know, it's this kind of thing that's trying to say you will be something with the possession of this. Now, I'm joking about this, but it's very serious because we actually buy into this a lot of the time. We crave, so we have this thirst. Now, why is it a thirst? Well, it's a thirst because by its very nature, an unquenchable thirst, it can be never satisfied. It has no terminal point. Think in terms of your own life. Have you ever had a mythology? Have you ever spoken this little mythology to yourself that says something like this? You can fill in your own X. If only I had, I would be happy. If only I was with... I would be happy. If I was only living here, I would be happy. Ever had that one? And in any form, mythologies like that? No, of course not. No, you're all too, too awakened. <laughs> but you see what's going on there. Well, you know, Oscar Wilde once said, there's nothing worse than not getting what you want than getting what you want. And it really is a case of this, because once you've got it, how long does the, in scare quotes, happiness last? One hour, two hours, two days, three weeks, two seconds? Before you're off on to the next, if only I had, (laughs) I would be happy. So in that sense, that's what I mean, it has no terminal point, it has no ending. So our desire, when left untrammeled, unchecked, will never be capable of being satisfied. Be that the desire for material things, sexual desire as well, and all the forms of desire which, in some senses, are very much prevalent of the human condition. We are, as a couple of French philosophers actually put it, you know, Deleuze and Qatari, actually claimed that we were desiring machines. <laughs> That's all we were, just desiring machines, and these systems in our societies make use of that. Okay, so that's one form of desire. The other is bawa tanha, which is actually the desire to be, the desire for continued existence in some form or other. Now, as you can see in the history of world religions and world thought and that, this has taken many, many forms. You know, it could be the desire for, I don't know, a soul, an immutable soul which is going to go on after death. And that's the very religious form. Hindus had this in the term of the Atman. The Atman was that which went on. It went on after death. It went on being reincarnated, taking up new bodily forms again and again and again. Hence that reason I quoted that little bit I quoted you of Krishna the other night, you know, if you think you kill, and if you think you are killed, you're mistaken because the Atman is, the Atman is un, imperishable. It's neither produced nor is it destroyed. Yeah. The Buddha is denying such a thing. However, it might be the desire for something of you to continue. Yeah. Not even that. It might not be the desire for you, know, you 
you know, a little entity with a stamp on it that says John or whatever it might be going on into continued existence. It might not be that form. It might be, for example, the desire on to live on through your children. This can be one other form of desire. Something of you goes on in some way or another. It might be a desire to make a name for yourself. And the name, actually in ancient India, they thought this was very much the case. The name went on even when the being disappeared. The desire for your name to continue in some way or another. It might be, I I think we see it sometimes on inscriptions on tombstones. A desire to be remembered in that way. So it's all about the desire for continuing or continuance in some form or another. Then, I always say that's you on a good day. Because then we have vibhava tanha, which is you on a bad day, the desire not to be at all, <laughs> the craving not to be. This is in a sense when all your, you know, your erotic impulses you know, are withdrawn from the world. And seriously, this can take a very, you know, a very dangerous form in obviously suicidal impulses, yeah. the desire not to be. It can be the desire not to be in activities. I mentioned the other night you know, some of the desires to get outside of ourselves that we have. Ecstasis, stepping outside of ourselves. You know, what I want to be, what I want to be, blotto. <laughs> you know, not to be conscious, not to have responsibility, not to have all these things. And I can attain it for brief periods of time by various chemical in- used methods unfortunately you're going to be washed up again and have to go through the whole procedure yet again one French thinker also pointed out of course that um, that actually a lot of humanity has been engaged in this continuously for centuries and centuries and centuries Georges Bataille says what was the desires that mainly manifested in humans um, over the centuries, where it was a desire to, you know, a desire for sexuality, you know, kind of sexuality, which in a sense was the loss of the self, the desire to intoxicate oneself, the desire, for example, for almost madness, where you lose yourself completely. Here, and in many ways, these are represented in Vibhavatanda, all ways of trying to lose ourselves in this. And they're not mutually exclusive because they're mixed up. It's not as if I have this one one day and this one another day and that one another day. Of course, for example, Bawa and Vibhava are based for the Buddha on a fundamental misconception. The desire to be and the desire not to be are based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of who and what we are, i.e. the self. The idea that the self will go on forever and the self can be totally annihilated in some form or another. So both are based on this fundamental misconception. Out of this whole complex, and I'm going to finish now because I see you're getting tired, out of this whole complex arises grasping and attachment. And I'll leave you on the cliffhanger there. (laughs) 
We'll pick this up again tomorrow night and we'll finish off the story of our entrapment and then start to talk about the unravelling of it. And the possibility of it being unravelled and the possibility, therefore, of these three things that we've been trying to develop, only one of them so far. We're going to move on tomorrow into doing some compassion practices later on tomorrow. But these things, the the actual being able, through the unravelling and understanding of the knot we're in, to actually start to manifest these in the world. That's where we're going. Okay, that was a bit longer than I thought it was going to be this evening. So please forgive me, but I'll just again pause and see if there are any questions, first of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, um, I'm just trying to understand this. this um, as I understand it now, it might be something else tomorrow, I don't know. <laughs> you see, um, uh, when you talk about Nirvana and Mara, I see it as a state of mind, like in Christianity, you talk about heaven and hell. It's just a state of mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking about states of mind. Mara, Mara, not, it's, it's personified, but it's not a physical thing. Mara is, yeah, Mara is what is in our own head. I often think of it as like the voice of temptation, personified. Yeah, it's that little thing that sits on your shoulder and whispers in your ear things like, you can have it, go on, it's all right. <laughs> Don't worry, you won't do it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that's Mara, in a sense. It's that voice of temptation. And because the voice is not coming from outside. It's not coming from outside. It's coming from your own state of mind. It's coming from your own state of mind. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. That's the everything na- is and everything is Yeah, everything everything is changing. This is this is the, this is the radical nature, as I keep saying, of the Buddha's message. That is the nature of things. That is the nature of the world we inhabit. That it's radically transient. It's radically. It has change written into everything that we perceive. Yeah. Now that, as I'm trying to say, of course can be terribly scary, but it also can be terribly liberating as well. And it's that aspect, if you like, I say terribly liberating, I think wonderfully liberating, that, of course, the Buddha is trying to get us to see. Because when we're bound to the idea of permanence, we are bound to suffer. If everything actually is changing, and we're trying to cling on to something and inhibit it to stop it from changing, then we're, in a sense, bound to fail. And when we fail, we are going to suffer. We're going to experience unpleasantness when that happens. I came across a lovely saying, and I've often said this, I, wished, I really wished I'd coined this one, because it it's a wonderful to say as far as I'm concerned. It goes like this, relax, nothing is under control. <laughs> 
Because that really is the nature of everything. It's, you know, it's our feelings of control and trying to inhibit change which actually make us suffer a lot. Yeah, it's not the only cause, but it's one of the major causes of the suffering that we experience. And you've only got to see, this is, this is I mean, I would say just go out, just observe. Just observe in your own lives the desire to make static that which is actually changing. Yeah. Even human relationships. You know, actually, well, what are successful human relationships? Successful human relationships are not about two people remaining the same. It's about two people in the midst of a negotiated change. That's really what it's about. It's the desire to make static is the desire which is never going to actually ultimately be fulfilled other than in some kind of mythological thinking. That's all. Freeze-framing somebody a period of time. So change is written in. The desire to create that stasis, that lack of change, is bound to create pain. If If we want those around us to remain the same even not to die, which of course is a great human wish. We don't wish our loved ones to die and to pass away, but they will. That's going to happen. And it's going to cause immense, immense pain. Now I'm saying this indifferent to grief. Grief is quite different. Grief is a natural occurring thing. But I mean the pain that comes by really not letting go. No, well, this is part of the reason. This is part of the reason why it's not just kind of self-meta. Meta towards a static self. It's a meta towards the process. Nothing else. Hence the reason why I spoke at length for a couple of nights really about the ramifications of this not-self business that we have in Buddhist thought. Because we're not, in, in, in other words, reifying a self and directing meta towards it. It's really towards this process of what we are in its changing nature. Now, that might be just observed one day in one form and it will be different in another day. So the meta is always different. The quality of the meta is always different because it's occurring differently in response to what is present if you're directing it towards... And I would heavily scare quote it, towards yourself. It's not towards an unchanging, fixed, static self, but just this open dimension which is actually ourselves. It's a play Nothing else. Yeah. Think of yourselves at play. Come on, enjoy yourselves. Because <laughs> yeah, that's what the self is. It's a play of things, of interacting and changing. And, um, and of course we take ourselves all too seriously. You know, we become very stodgy and serious uh, when we take out, you know, this is the way I am. So have you ever said those words or even thought about them you know, when somebody's challenged you in any way? This is the way I am. Implies I can't change. Yeah. But you will. <laughs> yeah. You'll change probably in a couple of seconds. 
Something will have occurred, something will have moved, something will have shifted. Yet we're trying to, in a way to solidify us. It's, it goes hand in hand with what I was talking last night, that search for identity, trying to create an identity for ourselves. You know, rather than see ourselves just at play. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you speak up? No, I can't hear. It's quite a long way. No, I didn't. I got the I got the bit about the second noble truth, but. I think there's a very good reason for that. It's just realism. It's just practical. Avijja and its contents of the asavas are just so deep. The roots are just kind of really sunk deeply into the ground that it's virtually impossible to get at that straight away. But the thing that we can readily observe and see in our ordinary life is that complex of craving and attachment and contact. Really those three things. Contact, feeling, actually four. I'm expanding them quickly, sorry. It's all changing. (laughs) Contact, feeling, craving and attachment. That we can really, in a sense, observe. And actually a lot of Vipassana, as I'm sure you're aware, is actually spent observing those things. Exactly that, because we have immediate access to those whereas we don't have immediate access to the depths, if you like, of our not knowing and not wanting to know a lot of the time. Um, so we, you know, many of the traditions will spend a lot of time looking and observing feelings and you know, not necessarily having to see what occurs, you know, in some sense it's blocking what occurs next, or at least creating a gap, trying to break the chain between the, feed, the arising of feeling and the arising of craving. Or at least, if you can't do that, to observe the craving which is kicking in almost immediately after. And that's accessible to everybody. You You don't have to be a thinker, you don't have to be anything to access that. All you've got to see is look at your desire upon seeing a beautiful object. Look at your desire, for example, in an ordinary meditation session when I'm not talking about really excruciating pain or damaging pain or anything like this, when people are shuffling around like this, simply because they've got a sensation. And it's, and it's slightly unpleasant. You know, people will keep moving, and that's a manifestation of that. So this is really readily accessible to everybody. You, know, you don't even have to think about it. <laughs> yeah. This is just an explanatory mechanism of just beginning to show you that. And that's why the Buddha taught you know, that in the noble truths, the ennobling truths, that the proximate, the most immediate cause that we can identify for dukkha, is craving. That's why. You may have just answered this earlier. I didn't follow the Pali words. Um, but I've been thinking about what people say about the causes of the causes of suffering in terms of why, why is craving and aversion and delusion the human default position? I mean, Christianity has the, the story of the Garden of Eden and the falls. Yeah. So what, what are they? Is it impermanence? He doesn't. 
I mean, it's quite the simple answer. He doesn't. He doesn't say what are the causes of the causes. He just says that these are. In other words, if you start looking for the causes of causes, you get into that kind of mythological thinking or metaphysical thinking, which takes you away from the immediacy of the problem. This really is um, the kind of thing that the Buddha was really encouraging us to avoid, is to say, deal with the problem. I mean, most of you, I'm about to well tell you, for those who are not aware of this, but this is the parable of the arrow that you find in the Malankaputta Sutta, this particular sutta in the Pali Canon, in the middle-length discourses. And it's a really lovely little story, and it's a joke. He's making great fun of this, because he's saying these kind of questions take us away from the immediacy of the problem. Here's the, here's, the, here's the little parable, in my version anyway. It's not exactly the same as the once in the sutta. A man is hit by an arrow. He falls to the ground. His arrow's stuck in him. Somebody runs up to him and says, shall I get the doctor? And the man says, before you get the doctor, I want to know the name of the man who fired the arrow. I want to know which village he comes from. What were his brothers called? What is his family name? Does he have any sisters? And then he goes on to, well, what is the arrow made of? What are the feathers of the arrow made of? What is the poison that's smeared on the arrow? And the Buddha just says succinctly, the man who asks questions in this way will simply die. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that, it's a big joke. And he's saying, asking those kind of questions, and they might be interesting, I mean, intellectually they might be interesting, um, it's taking us further and further and further away from the actual real problem. Seriously, there's a serious part about that in the business of being hit by the arrow. The arrow is dukkha. It's painful. It's sharp. You're bleeding. Are you going to staunch the bleeding? Are you going to try and stop the pain? You know? This is the immediacy of what the Buddha is really saying. It's actually veiled within the joke is the seriousness of it. You are in this seriously terminal condition. Yet, you, know, you don't do anything about it because you keep asking these irrelevant questions about it. So that's what the Buddha is trying to get us back to, the immediacy of our situation, the immediacy of our dukkha, the immediacy of our suffering, unsatisfactoriness, pain, distress, panic, anxiety, you know, all these things which are included under that. These are the things we have to deal with. Yeah, and that's what he's trying to bring us back to. It's inbuilt. It's it's inbuilt. It's not. There's nothing. There's nothing outside of the system judging you. There's nothing going. You know, this is a sin. This is this is wrong. Pun. Yeah. Everybody is responsible. Ultimately, you're responsible through your intentions. You know, it's not just action. It's action with intention, and it's the intention to which the karma accrues, not simply the action itself. So in other words, again, what the Buddha is doing, as he does, you know, and that's why I claimed, I think, one, one of the first evenings, really, the Buddha is the first psychologist. He's actually, psycho- you know, he's actually putting it back into the psychological realm of saying, it's not just that you act in a particular way, it's the intention behind the way that you act. It's going to actually accrue the karma, or the result, to you know, whatever action is there. So you can have actions which end up with the same results, but because of the different intentions, 
they'll be karmically weighted differently. So one might be an intention, for example. I mean, let me just give you one silly example, which is an example I often use. You know, I go out with a shotgun looking for rabbits to kill. You know, and I kill a rabbit with it. Obviously, the intention there is to kill. That's the intention. I'm driving my car down one of these lanes, and you've probably seen them if you've driven. There's rabbits running all over the place. You know, and I hit a rabbit and kill it. My intention wasn't to kill the rabbit. Both actions end up with a dead rabbit, but the intentions are very, very different in each case. And so the karma will accrue to the intention, not just the act in this instance.